Hi, you're listening to Let's Talk Chemistry, a podcast by ChemTalk. On today's episode, we interview Dr. Pong Yi Lim at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Lim earned her PhD in chemical and biological engineering from Princeton University. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Chemistry. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your co-hosts. And I'm Alex. Today, we're talking about gene expression and editing. We're so excited to have the incredible Dr. Bumi Lim featured on this episode. Dr. Lim is a professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. She is an expert in manipulating gene expression with engineering principles to explain human development, metabolism, and disease. You could even say she is a genius in her field. <laughs> nice one, Erin. Hello. Hi, all. I'm Bomit Lim. I'm an assistant professor at the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. I am originally from Korea, but I came here to the States to study in college. And actually, I went to Penn for my undergrad. So I'm one of the lucky ones who were able to come back to my alma mater. So at Penn, uh, I majored in chemical and biomolecular engineering. And after that, I went to Princeton University to get a PhD in the same field in the chemical and biological engineering there. And uh, after getting a PhD, I uh, worked as a research fellow for like an year at the Genomics Institute in Princeton. And then in 2018, I came back to Penn to teach. Wow. It's clear that Dr. Lim has had an incredible path to where she is today as one of the leading scientists in chemical and biomolecular engineering. I wonder how she became interested in the intersection of engineering and biological systems. I bet a lot of our listeners with broad STEM interests are wondering this too and are curious how Dr. Lim found her niche. I got sort of interested in this more biofield now because I realized that many of the uh, core principles that I learned in chemical engineering can readily apply in the biological systems. It's just the difference of like applying it to more of a classical, like a petroleum kind of applications, but now like it's more applying to the real like body. At the first semester of the PhD program at the grad school, different faculty members at the department would take turns and then talk about their research. And it was uh, my PhD advisor who gave the talk on how he was able to apply all this chemical engineering knowledge to biological systems. And he I don't know. He just did heck of a good job. I really thought I wanted to work with that guy. And uh, the, just, the idea was kind of mind-blowing. So I don't know. I was sold. Seems like Dr. Lim has benefited greatly from mentorship, which is why I'm so excited to share her research methods, application, and ethics principles with our audience today. Let's hear some more about what Dr. Lim is researching currently. My research is really on how the changes in genome would affect the gene expression in cells. When I talk about the changes in the genome, it's one part of it is actually literally changing the genome using genome editing, such as CRISPR techniques, by editing the nucleotides here and there. And another type of changes that we're doing is sort of related to the biochemistry side of it, meaning the nucleotide itself is maintained the same. However, we're changing the chemistry of it a little bit such that the DNA could be either acetylated or methylated because it's been shown that by changing that sort of a phosphorylation status or the chromatin status of the DNA, we have an impact on the gene expression. So, and uh, of all the things we're really interested in, some of the more moderate or nuanced changes in the genome, probably because if you have a mutation 
And if that is severe enough that it could actually cause lethality, then it would be lethal. And most likely at the embryonic stage, it wouldn't be able to be born. But for moderate changes are something from the engineering or from more quantitative perspective that interests our lab more because if a mutation is causing sort of moderate changes such that it would give you symptoms or it would give you some significant phenotypes, however, it's not severe enough to like kill you, then we are interested in sort of uh, finding a way to reverse it or even before even trying to ensure that we're interested in even characterizing what is causing such uh, moderate changes or some fluctuations? Because that's something that we could study more systematically using a lot of engineering approaches, including more sort of our approach of synthetic biology and mathematical modeling. The epigenetic markers is uh, what I talked to you about, the DNA being methylated versus acetylated. So when the chromatin is uh, acetylated, it is known that it often promotes the gene expression such that the gene is expressed in higher amount. And the, when it is unmethylated, then uh, we're actually shutting it off a little bit. So epigenetic changes is a something where without permanently having to change the genome, by simply changing the biochemistry of it, can you actually control the gene expression? So because of that, you can, I don't know, kind of intuitive to think that this is not a permanent change, so maybe like lower risk. So because of those, people are really interested in like following this direction and uh, I'll let same. Wow, fascinating. As a musician, I can't help but draw an analogy between epigenetics and music. The human genome is like an orchestral score. The notes and rhythms are concrete, yet it is up to the conductor to interpret the music and to give it life. I see where you're going with this. Epigenetics is the modification of gene expression rather than the alteration of the genetic code itself. Scores like our DNA and the conductors are the multitude of proteins, RNA, and environmental factors that control the marvelous symphony of gene expression in our bodies. Exactly. I think that Dr. Lim did a wonderful job explaining how processes like acetylation and methylation regulate the expression of genes, almost like they are on and off switches. I agree. but. Are epigenetic modifications the only way to control gene expression? Great question. Dr. Lim's second research focus is on the use of gene editing to directly alter the genetic code. Unlike epigenetic modifications, which are reversible and do not touch the code itself, gene editing makes changes to the nucleotide sequence by cutting and inserting sections of DNA. Such technology may sound like it's straight out of a sci-fi movie, but in fact, it's reality and widely used today. Yes, these days, gene editing is a hot topic in the scientific community. Breakthrough invention of CRISPR-Cas9 in 2009 has made it easier than ever to target and change specific genes in mammalian cells. I agree. This summer, I had the amazing opportunity to try making gene deletions in cancer cells by using CRISPR. Just the other day, my friend sent me a picture of a glowing kitten and asked me if I could make her one in the lab. It seems outrageous, but it's real. Scientists have actually modified cats to glow in the dark by using CRISPR to insert a gene for a fluorescent protein called GFP. I bet your friend was thrilled to learn it's actually possible. On a side note, if you're interested in learning more about GFP, we have another great podcast episode on it. But definitely check it out. Thanks for the plug, Alex. You may be wondering, how does CRISPR work? Interestingly, CRISPR refers to the repeating clusters of DNA found in bacterial immune systems. 
Bacteria have long used an enzyme called Cas9 to cut viral DNA and introduce it into its own genome as a form of protection against future infection. Scientists use a similar approach by using CRISPR to guide the Cas9 enzyme toward gene targets, thus disabling, repairing, or inserting genes of interest. That's amazing. I wonder how CRISPR can be applied to solve clinical problems. Let's hear what Dr. Lim has to say about this revolutionary technology. There are many ongoing clinical trials on using CRISPR to edit the human genome and to treat some other diseases such as uh, sickle cell anemia and some others. And I think the one on sickle cell anemia or the beta thalassemia, that's a type of anemia that people are getting where because of the mutation, the patients have to get the blood transfusion throughout their lives. And that clinical trial is uh, on mutating that gene such that the, the patients do not need the transfusion anymore. They, their body can actually produce normal blood cells to sustain the blood level. I think their third clinical trial had really positive uh, outcomes. So they are actually under FDA review right now, and they expect to hear back from the FDA either at the end of this year or early next year. So we may, we're actually at the rim of having the first ever FDA approved CRISPR therapy. And that's just one example that's close to the end, but there are many, many, many other like clinical trials that are on the queue. So the future is pretty bright, I have to say. CRISPR gene therapy has such amazing potential to prevent and treat inherited disorders that were considered incurable beforehand. Future of CRISPR is bright indeed, maybe even brighter than those glowing kittens we mentioned earlier. Glowing kittens sound amazing, but what does it take to make a glowing kitten? And how do you know where to draw the line when editing genes, particularly human genes? That's a great question. Seems like, more often than not, the media attention surrounding CRISPR highlights the negatives, like ethical concerns, over its positive potential. Yep, there's always concerns about what alterations should be permitted, who can access this technology, and how it should be regulated amongst many others. I think that the Spider-Man comic said it the best. With great power comes great responsibility. Given how powerful of a tool CRISPR is, scientists and civilians alike are concerned about its negative implications on society. But it all boils down to the ultimate ethical question. Just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. If we do, there's undoubtedly a lot of great things that can arise from CRISPR, like helping those of anemia. Let's hear what Dr. Lim can tell us about it. So all the ones that are currently on FDA uh, approval list or undergoing clinical trials are actually editing what we call isomatic cells, meaning we're editing a fraction of cells in your body, say, to treat these anemia, then we're actually extracting some of the hematopoietic stem cells, meaning the cells that would eventually be differentiated into blood cells. And then we're extracting those out, edit them, and then put them back into the patients. So then we're kind of changing only the cells that are going to form blood in the end. And because these blood cells are not being inherited to the offspring, you don't have to worry about any sort of unexpected outcome that will be carried over to the next generations. And it's similar for all the other clinical trials. Like the only gene editing that's available or that's being approved at this stage is affecting these somatic cells that are not being inherited to the offspring. Absolutely incredible. And Justin, the FDA has officially approved the first CRISPR gene therapy for sickle cell anemia. 
Now, helping those with anemia without having any unexpected and unwanted outcomes for the next generation and future ones sounds pretty good to me. So what's all the hoopla? It's all in the details. Remember, Dr. Lim only mentioned somatic cells, not other cells that are inherited, like gametes. Take it away, Dr. Lim. But all the controversy is in play about uh, editing what we call the non-somatic cells or the ones that are actually inherited. So like embryos, for example, because when you change at the embryonic stage, then it's so early, meaning all the heritable cells that are responsible for reproduction and stuff would also be edited. Then it will be carried out to the offspring. Then if something happens that we didn't expect before, then it could cause issues. And the reason is, while CRISPR is very, very powerful, evident, like, as a byproduct, while we are editing the particular locus that we're edit that we want to edit, inevitably it would also change some other parts of the genome that we didn't plan to. And characterizing or exactly finding out how many of those what we call off-targeting mutations have occurred, we're not at a stage where we can faithfully count it. So then chances are it's low, but at the same time, we're dealing with humans, so you don't want to risk it. So that's where the controversy came from. Like, do you really want to make the permanent changes that will be carried over and over without really controlling 100%? I see. So despite CRISPR's power, it has way more problems than I thought. Yep. And it would be a disaster if these flaws were overlooked. Who knows what kind of freak accidents could happen and the public outrage and outcry that could come. It'd be a total disaster. Who knows what could happen? CRISPR research could be put on hiatus. You know, this reminds me of when cloning was a hot topic. You remember Dolly the sheep, right? Oh yeah, it was quite a radical thing. And one of the biggest questions was, will humans be cloned too? I could only think of a bunch of clone troopers, like in Star Wars, marching around looking exactly identical. Haha. <laughs> Fortunately, we don't have to worry about something like that anytime soon. However, Dolly's legacy led the way to a controversy in 2018, where Chinese biophysicist Ha Jiankui genetically modified human embryos using CRISPR. I've heard about this. Lulu and Nana, right? Yeah. Jiankui was later sentenced to three years in prison with a 3 million yuan fine, about $430,000 for unethical conduct as well as forging documents. Yikes. This shows how taboo human experience and modifications are. Indeed. Artificially changing humans has always been and will probably always be a very sensitive topic to discuss. Now let's hear what Dr. Lim has to say about this from the perspective of a scientist well-versed in this field. The second side of it, of course, is now we're thankfully with all the work from biologists, chemists, physicists, and others, we're we know quite a lot about what's forming the body. We would kind of know like what would make you a, a person a good eyesight, what would reduce the risk of like breast cancer, things like that. Then how much do you allow for the sake of decreasing the risk for getting disease later versus enhancing it? Because you can always edit the gene to like theoretically to enhance that person. So deciding on that boundary is still very tricky. And that's why I think Many of the policymakers would hold regular conferences, regular symposiums with some of the scientists 
So they would gather ideas and trying to like define a boundary or trying to come up with a guideline. But from the scientist's perspective, I definitely want to advertise all the good side of this technique. But at the same time, uh, from the educator's perspective, we should probably have more of this kind of opportunity or make this information available to others such that it could create some healthy discussions. Promoting healthy discussions about this kind of thing, especially when it's such a debatable topic, is great for generativity and encouraging new and deeper thoughts. The goal for a good discussion, after all, is to understand and consider differing opinions. Unfortunately, that's quite rare to come by nowadays. Especially with the anonymity and dehumanization of others with the internet. But when it does happen, it really gives some faith back in humanity. But that's a topic for another day. To wrap things up, let's hear Dr. Lim's advice for future students pursuing this field and a future outlook. This is a, this is a definitely fun field and fastly changing. Like, I am teaching this course on genome engineering every spring what, four years in a row, five years in a row by now. And there's not even a textbook because the technique itself was published 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And even then it is changing. Every year I have to edit my lecture slides because new information is coming in. And so it may sound daunting and challenging because there's so much information to learn and things are changing so much. At the same time, I think it's kind of worth it. So, like, for those uh, who are interested in pursuing a career, I think it's definitely, yeah, it's like a worthwhile field <laughs> to invest your time at. The COVID vaccine story was sort of a shocker to me because uh, I don't know if you're aware, but the, the initial technique that used this modified RNA as a uh, vaccine material was actually developed here at Penn <laughs> by one of the yeah, faculty members. And two of them and but back then for a while for like good 20 years or so people were not interested in this modified rna technique so the research was not able to be funded some people did it and gave up but this lady she didn't give up she pushed through and then that in the end is all this what Pfizer and the moderna vaccine that were we've all got so like that persistence has uh, shocked me. I mean, how could you actually do a research that people don't think it's hopeful, like for such a long time and make it work? And that excited me a little more because that particular technique is directly related to the field of CRISPR because that's what most people, most of the clinical trials are using now, using uh, this uh, RNA and the putting that in uh, lipid nanoparticles to deliver the Cas9 RNA and the guide RNA to edit the genome in the human cells. So that has been the most exciting sort of a discovery in the past few years. And uh, there are a lot more coming that could be available because of this in combination with the genome editing. So that's what excites me right now. With how new this field is, there's so much potential for exploration and discovery that's yet to be found. I bet that someone who's considering this field right now will go discover something great. Totally. Who knows who from a generation will have a breakthrough and all the discoveries that'll build off of that one. And I bet one of our very own listeners will have great accomplishments and new findings. 
Just know that if you're interested enough, you can find all sorts of wonders no one has before. Until next time, I'm Erin. And this is Alex. Until next episode, stay tuned for more Chem Talk. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk Chemistry, a podcast by ChemTalk. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on today's episode and countless chemistry resources, please visit our website at www.chemistrytalk.org.